1: all alone in the studio i'm all alone in the office actually there's no one here there's no one anywhere really except in their own houses uh but i wanted to tell you uh two things as i sit here in the studio for what i assume will be the last time for quite some time uh and here are the two things one of them is uh we're gonna keep making the show it'll probably sound a little different than it normally does we're gonna be calling people on the phone rather than bringing them into the studio But uh, we got time on our hands. I feel like other people have time on their hands. Uh, So we're going to keep making the show. It'll be here every Wednesday. Uh, We're going to keep doing it. That's the first thing. The second thing is we're going to keep doing it thanks to uh, the sponsors who make it possible, like Squarespace. Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, you won't, but if you do, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Here's the show.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, your co-host, and I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Not here, here. No one gets together anymore.
1: Generally, though, we're here together on the podcast. I do think our
3: general tilt towards... Uh, Recording these introductions remotely now seems prescient. And I'd just like to congratulate myself as the person who uh, innovated not showing up to them.
1: Is there there some way where I could bet on whether or not you are going to make a self-congratulatory I've been quarantining for months joke on every intro of the podcast for the next like six months? Well, (laughs) I like
3: to think that I also help prepare you guys. So the wealth was shared.
1: (laughs) It does seem like you've been living a very healthy lifestyle.
3: Um, No, actually, I've just eaten like all of the snacks already. And uh, it's uh, it's get grim.
1: I I am so incapable of working from home in the snack arena. It's it's a problem. Evan, uh, who is on the show this week? I I understand that we have a timely guest.
2: Uh, Indeed. This week I talked to John Muellem. Uh, John is, uh, a very good friend of mine, as you'll hear on this episode, he has been on the podcast twice before. I was very much looking forward to speaking to him about, uh, the book that he has coming out next week, uh, called this is chance, uh, because it actually has a lot to say about this moment. It's about the Alaska earthquake in the sixties and the way people came together after that earthquake. Um, this wasn't exactly how we wanted to do it. He was supposed to be in New York. Obviously, he couldn't come to New York. This was taped less than a week ago, but still almost a week ago, but seems like uh, a universe ago. So uh, please allow for any differences in our in our situation from where we all were a week ago. But I do think that John is someone who can really speak to this moment. I think the book really speaks to this moment. And uh, we talked a lot about that. If you
3: are looking uh, to communicate with loved ones, um, let people know that you're all right and uh, share what's going on. This could be the perfect time to start an email newsletter with MailChimp. They bring you this show, which uh, I haven't discussed this with you guys, but uh, we're we're just going to keep on doing it, right?
1: Yeah, we're going to keep on doing it. Okay,
3: we're going to keep on doing it. Here's the thing.
1: Everyone just sitting around. We could call anyone right now and do the show. We're
3: pros at sitting around.
1: Oh, yeah, we're, we're great at this. And now everyone's on our level. Everyone else is just sitting around, too. We're going to call them.
3: Okay. Uh, here's Evan with John Muallam.
4: John Muallam, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Evan. (laughs) This is a strange time. We're talking in a strange time. I mean, actually, in one sense, we're not talking in a strange time because it's Thursday at like two o'clock, which is typically when I would call you maybe every other week or so for the last many years.
5: Yeah. This is the disclosure part of the interview.
4: I think so. I don't think we're going to get away with a, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and your book that you wrote. Um, Yeah. We, we talk a lot.
5: Yeah. We had this standing phone call every other Thursday for probably a year and a half, maybe, while we were each working on books as just uh, some tether to the outside world and a a safe place to discuss whatever was going on with the projects or just with life, I guess, during those those times when you're ordinarily shut in by yourself typing.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And I thought of it also as One of the problems, which maybe you already knew because you'd previously written a book, when I was writing a book for the first time was that no one can keep it all in their head, even you, the person writing it at some level. But if you don't have someone who has some familiarity with it, all these issues come up and you end up bothering your spouse about them constantly. Like, that's the only person who you talk to enough who knows enough of the scope of the book. Even the editor you don't really talk to enough to kind of like have a regular understanding of what you're going through or not in my experience. So that's part of what it was for me is I could talk to you about something from what I was working on and you had a frame of reference that went back eight months.
5: Yeah. And that's, I think that's absolutely the trick too, because no one's going to do that for you. No one's going to be that person for you unless they also happen to be writing a book at that time and will be receiving <laughs> the same You know service and reassurance in return so i think it was a pretty like good symbiotic relationship we struck
4: (laughs) yeah it only really works that way otherwise you would have to pay for that kind of service i feel
5: right but the other reason this is
4: strange everything is strange right now we're talking on thursday god knows what it'll be like when this comes out on wednesday we're in the middle of the coronavirus basically shut down everyone shutting everything down you were supposed to be here we were going to talk in person, you were coming for your book launch, and then instead of that, I just walked like an hour and a half to get to the studio rather than take the subway since everyone's trying to do their part to stay away from crowds. And you are where? Describe to me where you are.
5: So I live on Bainbridge Island, which is outside Seattle. So, you know, we're, we're not Seattle, but we've had some confirmed cases here and I'm sitting in a, uh, it's a community nonprofit, sort of like a maker space I guess, there's a wood shop and a metal shop and things like that and there's also a little podcasting studio here, the place is called Barn and um, so I'm sitting uh, in this pretty sweet studio in sort of a cloud of Clorox wipe aroma.
4: <laughs> I think at some point that Clorox smell many years from now will be the one that will will take us back to this moment and is the universal smell of early spring 2020. Um, well, prior to a few weeks ago, if you'd said the term social distancing to me, I would have said, I know someone who does social distancing. That's John Muel. I mean, he lives on an Island surrounded by trees and works at
5: home. Yeah, that's depressing, but but true. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess I'm a sort of a hero uh, of social distancing being called to my moment right now to be a a model for others. Um, No, I don't, you know, Bainbridge is a pretty cool town. It's, uh, you know, it's not that small. It's 27,000 people. And, but yeah, I think just like I can easily not see people for a while if it comes down to it.
4: So I don't that often ask about sort of like the commercial aspect of the book. And we haven't, I haven't talked to you in probably a couple of weeks, but I am curious from a personal perspective, like, how are you feeling about the fact that the book is landing commercially amidst this moment?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, that's a complicated question. And I feel like also any answer I give now might seem bizarre in a few days time, um, should I say what the book is about? Yeah,
4: let's talk about what the book is about first. It'll it it'll make more sense if we do that.
5: Yeah. So the book is called This is Chance. And uh, it's basically been a six-year project. It's a story about the 1964 Great Alaska Earthquake, which uh, was the most powerful earthquake, still is, in, in American history. And it basically reconstructs three days in the city of Anchorage. Um, the earthquake happened on Good Friday just as the sun was going down. And the book uh, talks about that Friday, Saturday and Sunday, that Easter weekend. Much of it sort of around the story of a, a part-time radio broadcaster in Anchorage named Jeannie Chance, who, you know, as often happens in these crises, did some pretty extraordinary work and, you know, over on the airwaves that weekend and also just helping people in town pass messages back and forth. But yeah, one of the real, I mean, the idea of the book is that there's this fragility to ordinary life that we don't walk around thinking about all the time. But there are moments like this earthquake or like what's happening now when you have to recognize that so many of the things that we take for granted are provisional and can just kind of drop away. Uh, I can't really even begin to guess about whether this is good for the book or bad for the book, you know, um, that um, I'm totally baffled. But in a sense, it's like <laughs> the book I wrote is about this kind of bafflement. So it all seems to be coming together in some way. <laughs> well, I, I do think that it has something to say for
4: this moment. I was just, you know, rereading it over the course of this week, but I was also rereading your other work, you know, really since we talked last, which I think was 2014 when we talked last for the podcast. And I feel like at a certain point, you started writing about this idea in a lot of different places and a lot of different forms. And the, the idea of randomness, or in one story you called it sort of a world of tumult and indifference, pops up in all of these different places. And I wanted to maybe start with that before we go back into the the details of the book. Like It feels to me seeing that in different stories, like the story about your kayaking trip that you took for the New York Times Magazine. There's a story actually about Neanderthals in which this topic comes up. There's a story about the campfire in California, the way in which life's randomness suddenly impacts you. And is this something that you were sort of marinating on for a long time, even before this book came about?
5: Yeah, I I think so. That's really interesting. I mean, obviously, I I knew all that, but it's just, it's cool to hear how someone else picked it up. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think I have like a coherent philosophy of the world or anything, but I definitely think this is something that I think is true in my bones is that there's just sort of a erraticness to the way things happen. And that there's some value in accepting that, even if it's, you know, doesn't solve the problem for you. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I was, I was trying to think about it yesterday, too, because I think when I started looking even just at writing a book about the quake, it was 2013 or 2014. And I think in at first what was engaging to me or what drew me in was this idea of like the city of Anchorage just kind of finding its footing as a place and Alaska as a state, and then having this kind of random disaster undo some of that progress. And I was thinking about it yesterday because I was remembering how originally, and I don't know if I'm proud of this, but originally that almost felt like an amusing, like somewhat comical fact that um, almost cartoonish, you know, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't really thinking about it in all of its depth. And and I think at at that point, like I probably only – I think the only way i could interpret that was you know either in terms of the kayaking accident that i wrote about which was basically like a trip i had taken in my early 20s where to make a long story short just a giant tree randomly fell and landed on my friend and there's a whole medevac and rescue and you know he ended up surviving but it was clearly just you know the definition of a random accident and then two years before that my father had died not so suddenly he had cancer, but it, it definitely all ramped up in a really quick, unexpected way. And those were just two exceptional, obvious facts um, in ways that nothing else really had been uh, in, in my life. Like no other experiences had been. that were just you, you know, inarguable. And there was a before and there was an after, those two things. And I don't think I really even made that connection to um, Alaska or some of these other things I was writing about, but I think as I got deeper into the story of the quake, and I think you know, frankly, the 2016 election helped too. I think that was you know just a similarly profound surprise. Um, I think once I started looking closer at Alaska and like actually trying to invest in individual people's stories, I realized like, oh, this is that same, this is that same moment for them. You know, this is that eeriness of where you thought there was some kind of uh, floor to reality. And in fact, there's not, it just dropped away and you're plunged into some other, you know, kind of realm.
4: And those two experiences, because you, you reference in the story about the kayaking trip, you reference your father's death. And it feels like there's a way those two events could happen that could actually leave you completely unmoored in life where you're just afraid all the time but it felt like you came out of it somewhat differently what how did you change between those two events
5: i yeah i mean i almost think of them as one event you know they were about a year and a half apart if i'm remembering right or two two years apart and it was almost like you know i wasn't even beginning to deal with my dad's death when the accident happened with my friend john his name's also john um so it was almost like my father dying was one kind of alarm or wake up call and it's like if i Hadn't gotten it after that. Here came the second one to drive it home. You know, um, it was like uh, they acted together. And yeah, I don't really remember being like living in fear of more terrible things happening. But I, I do very clearly remember a kind of confusion. And I should also mention: I mean, my dad died three weeks after I graduated college. So I basically I came home from college with no real plans. I had a job at a butcher shop near where I grew up. And three days later, he went into the emergency room and then three weeks later, he he died. So it was also at this weird time in my life where supposedly anything was possible. And this was like, oh, yeah, like anything is possible, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I do remember in that at that time, just really struggling with all kinds of indecision. Yeah, you know, the Robert Frost poem about the two roads that diverge in the woods. So I was really yeah. into poetry at that time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's also like famously like probably the most misread poem in the American language because it's really not about deciding to take a brave path on your own. He's saying very clearly, like there were two roads and they were both about the same. One was just slightly less traveled by. <laughs> and I decided to take that one and that pretty much evened them out. And, uh, and you know what, it, it really doesn't matter. They're going to send me to different places, but it's, you know, I can't claim that there was any kind of momentous benefit or failing in the choice I made. And I just realized just like, that was my life, you know, it was just like staring at, two or more paths at everything and just being like, well, you know, it, it matters, but I also know it doesn't matter and just not knowing what the calculus is to make any decisions anymore.
4: I think this is what everyone, what I'm sort of getting to and why I'm kind of backing into all this by asking about that is like, yeah. this is what everyone's thinking about right now right. and just sitting down and rereading a bunch of your stories and rereading the book in this exact moment where your random touch of a doorknob could change the course of your life. That's the idea that's kind of like floating around in the world. It it very much connects with what happened to you and what you've sort of been writing about in different ways for the last, like, maybe your whole career, but especially I feel like over the last, you know, six to eight years in different stories.
5: Yeah. I mean, I also think it's, it's interesting because I don't want to feel like, you know, this is my unified theory of everything and therefore I apply it to every story I write. I mean clearly I think I would have done some of those stories differently if I hadn't also been working on the book at the same time, but I also think that's genuinely there and someone else might have just told the story the other way. But yeah, I think that in a lot of ways I'm, you know, not in this context by any means, not in terms of coronavirus, but In a lot of ways, I just kind of am amused by that facet of existence too, right? So it's not only a a terrifying familiarity with it.
1: Hey, it's Max. I'm gonna put John and Evan on hold for just a second. Tell you a little bit about a sponsor making today's show possible. It's Squarespace. It's time to turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace. And here's a thing uh, that I know. You might have a little time on your hands right now. It also feels like, weirdly, work is busier somehow uh, during quarantine time than it was before. But still, you're not going anywhere. You've got nothing else to do. But you know what you do have? The Internet. So why not, instead of just endlessly scrolling the news, uh, why don't you make something? Why don't you put something good out into the world or put something out into the world that you've been meaning to put out for a very long time? Squarespace is the easiest way to launch that passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, Squarespace is the tool for you. They've got beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with just a few clicks. So you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. They got powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online, analytics to help you grow your site in real time. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's nothing to patch, there's nothing to upgrade. Buying domains is really simple and you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, to turn great ideas into something real. Now it's your turn. Use this time, put something good, out in the world head to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial and when you're ready to launch use the offer code longform to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain that's squarespace.com slash longform offer code longform now let's get back to evan and john
4: Where and when did you come across the Alaska earthquake as a topic that you sort of wrote down on a list of topics that you might want to look into?
5: Yeah, so there's sort of a longer version that's, I tell like a very quick version of that in the middle of the book and the longer version, which I can tell somewhat quickly here, is actually relates to the kayaking story, which is that my friend John, who was in the accident, you know, was recovering and there was a, a time about a year and a bit later when he and I were both uh, living in Portland together for a short time. And uh, we were taking a road trip. We were both sort of at these weird moments in our life where we just sort of were pulling up stakes and trying to figure out what what we were doing. And we took this road trip uh, for a week through um, Crescent City, California, like near the Redwoods, and we were camping out there. And one morning we went to a diner for breakfast, and there were all these photos of just ruins of this town around the diner. With I guess this sort of um, older waitress had noticed us looking at them and she it was like out of a movie. She walked by the table and just without even looking at us slid this scrapbook across our table to us. And inside was were all of these typewritten and handwritten accounts of a tsunami that hit Crescent City in 1964. And in some ways, it was a very similar story. I didn't know about Anchorage at that time, but it was a very similar story. Where it was a kind of an upstart town, and they were just you know, kind of coming into their own, and then they were uh, you know, wiped out by these tsunamis. And they had a big energy into recovering, and they wrote a, a song that was played on radio called "Come Back, City USA. And then right as that was happening, they were hit by flooding and um, you know, had a lot of damage again. And I just thought that is such a profound story in some ways. And I always just sort of thought maybe I should – look into that someday. Mm. And uh, it took me 13 or 12 years, probably, to just even do a simple Google search. And the question occurred to me, why why was there a tsunami, you know? And uh, that took me to the Alaska earthquake. The Alaska earthquake was so large that it sent a raft of tsunamis down the West Coast. And Crescent City, because of these quirks of its geography, was, was impacted the worst. And so I started reading about the quake and thought, well, maybe I can write about both of these events in the same story. And eventually then I, I pretty quickly I found out about Jeannie Chance, this radio broadcaster. And from there, everything just started spilling out. Did you
4: instantly grab onto her as someone who you could tell the story through? Or did she seem like a side character? I mean, there's all kinds of amazing characters. It's Alaska in the 1960s, like just fascinating people one after the other. And did she immediately jump out as, oh, this is the character, so to speak, through which this story can be told?
5: Not immediately, but very, very quickly, because I guess the first mention of her that I found was actually a report that she had taken it upon herself to write after the quake, where she just collected accounts of like several hundred Alaskans around the state describing what they experienced during the four and a half minutes of the earthquake. So the earthquake lasted four and a half minutes at least in Anchorage. And, you know, times vary depending on where you are. And I like to say that like four and a half minutes it would mean that you could start playing uh, "I Just Called to Say I Love You" when the quake started, and then when the song is over, you'd still have ten seconds of shaking. So, <laughs> um, so she wrote this report, um, which you know, is a pretty exhaustive document about the quake. And I think was even maybe online at the time. I don't think it is anymore. But somehow I'd found that report very quickly. And in the the notes of that report, it just explains that the author is radio broadcaster Jeannie Chance, who stayed, you know, on duty at her station for 59 hours and her family recorded many of many hours of her broadcasts, right? So right away, you know, the you get that tingling feeling that there's some wealth of material there. And it took even longer for me. I think very quickly I had, you know, found a number for her daughter, but it sort of took me a while to actually call. And then as soon as I called Jeannie's daughter, Jeannie had passed away in the in the nineties, but as soon as I called her daughter, then it was it was game over because she said, Yeah, you know, I have these thirty something boxes of Jeannie's things in my basement. And you know, literally moved back and forth across the country with them, you know, over the past 20 years, just not knowing what to do with them. And, you know, I make this point in the book, but the longer I worked on it, the longer I realized that there really could have been any person, not any, but there's so many people that could have been the focus of a book about the 64 quake. And in some sense, the book in large part focuses on Jeannie just because she was a person where the material existed to tell the story through her eyes in such detail, she documented it. She documented it, and she also just documented her life in Alaska in general. Um, so all of the context and color and texture of what it was like to be living in Anchorage at that really peculiar moment, you know not even the moment of the quake, but just in the you know mid sixties was just all there in these boxes so that's what I went with you know I don't know what that says in sort of like a cosmic justice way about who gets to tell the stories and you know how history is written but um, but there it is so let's talk about where all
4: the sort of sources of where everything came from there were people you found who are al- alive and could tell you their stories and then there was Jeannie Chance's daughter and the boxes and then what were the other sources that you turned to
5: Yeah, there was a lot of stuff just piecemeal. So the university in Anchorage had, you know, obviously their own collection of earthquake related stuff. And Jeannie had sent some of her things there before she died. And they actually had a lot of reel to reels, some of which there were also a lot of duplicates of that in Jeannie's boxes, but they had reel to reels of radio broadcasts from that weekend in Anchorage. I don't know how many hours I counted them up at some point. I can't remember. I think it was something like 15 or 16 hours from two different stations. And none of those had been touched. I Actually, I had to pay to have them digitized and stuff because the the library actually didn't have a way to play the reel-to-reels. And they're so old that it's very risky to just kind of switch them on because you can break the tapes. There were a couple things at, at other universities uh, there were just individual people. Like, so one of the threads deals with the community theater production and this sort of larger than life community theater director in Anchorage. And there were some people who, who were close to him. One in particular, a woman named Robin Nyman, who had a lot of his things. But the sort of the other big pay dirt is that the word the big the big when I hit pay dirt was uh, <laughs> the Disaster Research Center, which was a um, is now in at the University of Delaware, but was a group of sociologists then at Ohio State who got to Anchorage the following evening and started interviewing 500, they interviewed 500 people total to study the community's response. And so those interviews, again, were something that no one had really touched. I think they told me I was the only journalist that's seen them. And um, I don't know why, maybe I'm just the first journalist that's used the collection. But these were like 30, 40, 50 page transcripts of interviews that these sociologists had done with both people in leadership positions in Anchorage, like the police chief and, you know, mayor and things like that. Um, Jeannie did one herself. And then all the way down to just ordinary civilians that were just, you know, tell me what happened. You know, it's 537, (laughs) the earthquake happens. Tell me what happens. And just, you know, you can see, you know, some people are far better storytellers than others, right? But that was, you know, I don't know that the book would have been possible without that.
4: I, I and I remember you telling me about about finding those that trove of documents, but it seems sort of simultaneously to me, maybe not to you, like an incredible find, an incredible wealth, but also sort of a scary amount, like an amount to have to condense or choose between that could actually make things very difficult. Like how do you how do you reconcile? people's impressions of the same event, you have this sort of Rashomon effect where they don't quite line up or where the facts get fuzzy and no one's alive to sort them out. Or even if they are, maybe their memories are faded. How do you navigate that?
5: Yeah. I mean, that was something you and I talked about a lot because I was very neurotic about that, you know, as (laughs) like in normal, in my normal life, you know, if I'm writing about contemporary events, then you're either watching them yourself or there's enough people that you can talk to and you can actually ask them questions. Like you can't ask a document follow-up questions. And I I still never really got over that. I just kept (laughs) being frustrated by that fact, you know, for for years. So I never developed any kind of strict system. But, you know, I should also say there probably wasn't as much disagreement as I think some people may assume, often because they were talking to all these people so shortly after the event. So there's obviously some built-in, Misremembering and differences of accounts, but it's very different than talking to people ten years later about something, right? Right. But yeah, but there were definitely a lot of small things. You know, the the kind of big disagreements the sociologists themselves were able to iron out, so that was helpful. But I say in the notes of the book, like the the example I, I give to sort of just talk about my process was, you know, there's this scene where it's in the middle of the night after the earthquake, and the phone lines in Anchorage are just starting to flick open again, and you know, really, there's been not a lot of information moving between Alaska and the lower 48 and Jeannie's working at the police station and she, there's a phone in front of her and it just rings and miraculously it's like a radio reporter from Omaha and he just is like tell me everything you know you know and uh, so I have a recording actually of her talking to him on the radio because they taped that conversation and put it on the mm-hmm. radio so I had that right but I was trying to describe it from her perspective And she – there were two different places where she had described that phone call happening. And in one, she talked about that the phone in front of her rang and she picked it up and started talking. And in another, she said that she carried the phone away from the counter, you know, could have a little bit more space and started talking to him. And uh, so which one was it, you know, right? Like you want to show it happening, Right. In the one where she talks about how she was going, carrying the phone away, she was writing to an editor where she was also trying to freelance some pieces later after the quake and she seemed to be using it as an excuse, like she didn't have her notes in front of her because she had carried the phone away. so I thought, well, that's a little suspicious, right? In the end, I just didn't specify, right? In the end, I just decided I don't, I can't say one or the other. And uh, I say in the notes of the book, like, I literally lost sleep over that one <laughs> night. Like, I found myself in bed thinking about that, turning the question over my mind. And just how insane that is. Like, I do not know why it matters. I do not know, you know, what I feel like would be so terrible about it. And yet that's like, it wasn't a choice. I wasn't choosing to deliberate to that extent, but it just happened around the same time. So (laughs) sorry. one other thing is that I might have told you this happened, but I have a friend, um, also named John. This is a podcast where I talk about all my friends named John. <laughs> how many? But, how many Johns uh, have you got? I think that might that might be it actually. Um, but yeah, my friend John, who's a you know like a really well read guy, not a writer but a really well read guy, and he lives in Portland. And I was there interviewing some people for the book, and I stayed with him and it was just kind of catching him up on um, you know how it was going with the project and stuff. And he was telling me how he's a big Eric Larson fan, you know, and he was telling me about one of Eric Larson's books which I hadn't read and why it was his favorite one and he was telling me the whole story. And then at some and he's read all the Eric Larson books. And at some point he said, yo, and the crazy thing is is like there was actually a guy who was, you know, like the ambassador to whatever country that was, you know, during the rise of the Nazis. And uh, so there's like, you know, it's sort of based on a true story, you know, and I just thought, like, I've heard Eric Larson on this podcast talking about how (laughs) diligent he is about getting every detail right. And, you know, my buddy, John, like, he didn't even care. It didn't even occur to him. He just assumed it was embellished slash made up to a large degree. And it did not detract from his enjoyment of the book at all. So you're confronted with something like that, and you just realize like how niche these you know anxieties and compulsions some of us have are, and yet like I definitely can't disown them. They're important for some reason. I just don't know why, really. At that level, I'm going to say, I mean, I'm talking about the level of like, did Jeannie take a phone call at the counter or away from the counter? I mean, obviously, there's bigger questions that matter a lot more. But.
4: Yes, but I think the question that always comes up is, is that some sort of slippery slope? Like, is that the thing that you're afraid of? That if... If you start saying, well, it doesn't matter where she did the phone call, no one's going to know that then you will somehow fall into a habit of applying that everywhere. Or is it something where like the whole project of doing this type of journalism unravels if you decide you don't care?
5: Right. Yeah. I mean, clearly that's true at some point. I don't think you need to maybe draw the line where I was drawing it. But yeah, if you don't draw the line there, I don't know where you do draw it. So I think... I think that's probably exactly right. And I think there's also part of the equation, which is I could tell it in that detail, you know, like I had the ability to tell a story in just an insane amount of detail in many places. And so, you should do everything you can to do it correctly, right? Faithfully.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So, this started as an audio piece, which I remember having the privilege of reading drafts of before it went out. But I don't know why. Why did it start as an audio piece? I mean, it's really like a live show that became an audio piece.
5: Yeah. So this was a project that we started working on in 2014, I think. It was commissioned by 99% Invisible. So I had done a collaboration with a band called Black Prairie back in 2013 when another book came out where they were sort of you know scoring stories that I I was telling on stage and we did like a tour there and they had, they had done a soundtrack to that book which is basically just like music to go with scenes in the book and it was just really fun to do something in collaboration with other people and just kind of fresh and in a new form and sort of make it up as we went along and we really wanted to do it again, because in in that one, it was very slapped together almost. Um, you know, they had written all this music, I'd written this book, and then in order to create a performance out of it, we just kind of slammed the two together as best we could. And when we were done, we were like, huh, you know, this is a pretty interesting like, way of telling a story. Maybe we should do another one and start from the beginning together. So, we knew we wanted to do that again. And uh, Roman Mars from 99% Invisible had recorded one of those shows and broadcast it on the podcast. And he was game to just, you know, sort of give us some money to do another one. And at that point, I was really starting to get a bead on Jeannie's story. And I think I like sort of pitched the band on the story in 2014. And we were working on it slowly together and finished it in 2016. At what point did it also
4: seem like a book? Was it the whole the whole time you're doing it, you were thinking this is also going to be a book or this is a great story to do with this band and we'll do it once or twice or a few times and and that'll be it.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think I I wanted to do this story with the band because I thought this is a chance to figure out if it's a book. And then I, I pretty quickly decided that it was, but there was also a lot of other things happening during those years. And there was a, a big stretch of time when I was really being encouraged to like write a, a different book and thinking about it pretty seriously. Can you say what that was? Oh, yeah, sure. It was So I, I'd written this piece, well, first for California Sunday about this kind of wacky but also profound project at um, IDEO to redesign death you know, how can we innovate to make death uh, more palatable? And I don't know, you can go read the story. I can't really explain it any better than that. But um, there's a lot of post-its. Yeah, a lot of it involves a lot of post-its. So, and part of that story involved this hospice director in San Francisco named BJ Miller, who's just like a really incredible guy. And uh, my agent, my book editor, you know, everyone was just sort of telling me like, you should really think about writing a book about this guy. And I definitely understood why and I you know I was I was pretty interested in it for a while but I just don't think my heart was in it and I also think the hospice where BJ that BJ was the director of in San Francisco was also simultaneously just falling apart administratively like not even for that sort of interesting reasons and I just felt like I didn't want to marry myself to that for you know years so that resulted in me writing a piece about BJ for the Times magazine because again that was sort of like a way to try it out and I don't regret any of the time I spent, you know, with him or learning about the work that he does and all these other amazing people. But during that time, I really was not thinking about the last thing. I'd mentioned it to people sometimes, but it was always sort of mentioned as, you know, I could do the death thing, but, you know, and <laughs> it was very clear, like, no one was as excited about it. So it sort of took my agent, actually, Jin Ah, to just sort of remind me that, you know, I'm free to do what I want, you know, which was, which was good. I guess I just need to hear it from someone else too. And did it immediately take as a book? I mean, did it feel like,
4: I mean, of course, when it's finished, it looks like, of course, like it all fits together, but to take this idea and say, there's enough there and to try to explain it in some way, it has a concept that maybe might not be immediately obvious.
5: Yeah. No, I mean, so I, it was just sort of sitting there, you know, like I just had all of these documents and I, I didn't even have that many of them. I hadn't even been to Jeannie's daughter's house. I'd, I'd met her when she was in Seattle and she'd sent me a bunch of stuff from the boxes. But I just, for some reason, I don't know, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, if you're you know, fortunate enough to like have work to do, then it's very hard to just hit a pause button and say, you know, I'm going to just fly up to Alaska and poke around for a little bit, right? Like, I just didn't have the courage, maybe is the word for it, for a while. So, it took me doing that and just the visceral experience of sitting in a room with all these boxes at Jeannie's daughter's place was enough to make me feel like it was okay. So, then I quickly started writing a proposal and was actually turned down by my previous publisher, which was, you know, kind of knocked the wind out of me, but really only momentarily, like I, again, like all credit to my agent who was just like, no biggie, like let's send it to you know these people. And, you know, two days later it was, we had sold the book. So that was like, it could have been like a big about a despair there, but there just wasn't time for it. Um, so uh, it's always good to so have yeah. someone
4: just constrain your despair,
5: right? Yeah, I think I was also on a reporting trip for the magazine at the time, so it was just like I was like, ah, oh, God, I can't even deal with this, right? You know. So it was, <laughs> um, it was pretty much the best scenario because I'm definitely the sort of person that that would have laid me low for uh, a while. But yeah, so yeah, it felt very charmed, I guess, in retrospect. But <laughs> it did take me a while just doing the proposal. And, you know, I think I'm skipping over part. I mean, I think one of the big delays, honestly, was just an unfamiliarity with what it meant to write a historical book. Mm. And just this fear that, like, what if it's not there? You know, even though I know I've got this great start, I've got this great wealth of material, what's going to happen when I get to a point in the story and I don't know what, what happens next and there's no one to call and there's no way to find out? And it's like a, really a leap of faith in a way that I think a reported book isn't because you just have to trust that you're gonna find your way out of those situations, and that just took me a long time, and I also just think that you know the alternative was like well, maybe it's not worth it, maybe it's not worth having to take that leap of faith, maybe I can just do something else instead.
4: Well, how did you find your way out of those situations when you did eventually hit them?
5: Yeah, I mean, I hit a really big one in the sense that you know I decided I'm gonna tell this three day long story, so it's you know Friday, Saturday. And then Saturday night, you know, I've got all this stuff, I'm following Jeannie. And then Sunday, it's like, I really don't know what she was doing most of Sunday, you know. Like there's just not – I think by that time, she just sort of given up taking good notes. And uh, I also think that the work she was doing became a lot less interesting and memorable. It was like by that time, it was just sort of this churn of like passing messages and solving little problems. And it wasn't like, you know, in the first 12 hours after the quake where like every new thing was this giant revelatory mystery that she had to – Cope with or absorb. And so things just kind of leveled out. So that was difficult. And I think I just say in the book, it's like it became hard to track her at that point. And here's the reasons why. And fortunately, there were enough other threads of the story that had emerged at that time that it didn't need to hang all on her. You know, it wasn't a book just about her anymore. I think like the city itself really became a character and there's you know Frank Brink who's this theater guy who, who kind of comes into the story around that time I and love then Frank the sociologist Brink. too but well, we all love Frank Brink Evan. I mean yeah he's <laughs> just like I, I don't know that there'll ever be a person as uh, satisfying to write about that I'll find as Frank Brink
4: I, The first time you told me about Frank Brink he had this sort of uh, like Christopher Guest you know waiting for Guffman quality the, the theater director in, this, in the far away place who's like making a big deal out of everything because he didn't make it when he was you know trying to hit the big time in new york but then in the final the final version of him that's like there but that's not the essence of it
5: yeah i mean i think that's like yeah you're exactly right like that's how we can see him right but within his world I mean, A, the stuff he was doing was apparently pretty great, you know, mm-hmm. like he was somehow ringing these performances out of, you know, maintenance men and, uh, you know, judges and school teachers who were coming to his rehearsals, you know, after long days of work and he was making them read Stanislavsky and do all these movement exercises and somehow just staging these pretty great productions. So yeah, I think it's like, I guess that goes back to what I was saying before about how I maybe sort of trivialized the weight of Anchorage's story at first. And then once you get a little more absorbed, you can see it on its own terms. And you can see that like, you know, any town would be blessed with a Frank Brink like character. I mean, there was actually one he's passed away recently, but there was a a very similar guy in the town where I live, you know, who was just sort of a fixture of the arts community here. And that's like a really real beneficial thing for community. So, yeah. It, you know, I, I never stopped being amused by him. I think it's great to have both of those perspectives in mind so you can show them both. But yeah, you're right. It got a lot more. It got better, really. It just got
4: fuller. So the show that they're putting on is Our Town, and that's a big part of the story. And I want to talk a little bit about the high wire act, as I see it, of how you wrote that into the story. I don't know how much of that you consider like a spoiler Oh, I don't I have no idea. I haven't even thought about it. So there's a frame around the book, which is the play Our Town, which has certain characters of which you become one, and that even as I'm describing it now and having read the book that you pulled it off, it seems very difficult to pull off.
5: Yeah, I also think when you just said it that way, it sounds so experimental or something. Or like I don't know, it didn't it didn't seem that complicated. You know, when I was, I hope it doesn't read like some. You know, so our town is. um, I don't know that I'd ever seen. I'm sure I read it in high school or something. But honestly, like my real frame of reference for our town was a Growing Pains episode where Kirk Cameron was uh, playing the stage manager in his high school play. Um, And uh, yeah, it's a play that's just it's about three days in a small town. And just everyday life in this town and, you know, there's a young couple that fall in love and get married. And the sort of weird feature of the play is that there's this character called the stage manager who is supposed to be like the stage manager of the play and who comes out and talks right to the audience and says, you know, his first line is this play is called Our Town. And he says "Who, who wrote it, Thornton Wilder, and who's directing it at that particular production. And there's these blank spaces where he's supposed to fill in the names of certain cast members and stuff. So that each community who's doing it can have the adjusted just to them. So but the eerie part of it, and the reason why I think the play is is so strange and not this simplistic kind of, you know, Americana drivel that I think people assume it is, and I sort of did, Mm -hmm. is that the stage manager also is uh, omniscient somehow. And so, he's just, he'll be, you know, two people talking on stage and he'll interrupt their conversation and say to the audience, you know, here's how they died. And he will just, you know, tell you (laughs) how they died, um, which is he does repeatedly. So, uh, I kind of use that. I had this experience where when I was researching the book, it's very bizarre to learn this much about three particular days from so far in the future. Because you see what's happened to all those people. You know, I would read an interview with somebody with a sociologist done and I would go Google them to figure out if I could talk to them and you'd find an obituary, you know. That was something that I was just kind of blown away by very early on in the process. I was like, this is not something that happens in ordinary life. In a sense, it felt like I was walking around in Anchorage that Easter weekend in 1964. And yet I also was carrying with me all of this information about what was going to happen to these people. And then I, I finally got around to reading Our Town because I knew I was going to be writing about that play. And I get to the stage manager saying, you know, see that paper boy, like he's going to go to war and die, you know. And uh, I just thought like, geez, you know, that's what I, I, I do that. You know, like I'm – I that, this is the only other person that can do what I'm doing, right? Now. you mean, know, like we're, <laughs> I have that same superpower, weirdly. Damn. And I just knew somehow that was important for the story, I guess. If the idea of the book was about this preciousness and this fragility to all of these otherwise mundane moments, somehow knowing the end of the story – just brings that into such sharp relief and that's the point of the play too so it's just this weird thing where the, the two things kind of merged in my head but again it's just so weird to say this out loud because it doesn't I feel like I'm explaining some very high concept thing but I, I it didn't really feel like that it just felt like this is just the way that you're telling a story as if you were telling it to someone you know over dinner or something
4: yeah but it's still the way it f- locks together as a reader I feel like the first time you experience, you do a little a bit of stage manager where you say, oh, and this guy died in this way, or this guy died before this guy, and then this guy died. And it's not typical. Like, it's not how a, a story is normally told. And so it, I feel like it requires a little bit of faith in the reader to kind of, like, be carried along with it. And then at some point, it just kind of, like, locks in that that's what you're doing or at least that was my experience of it does it feel risky to you that the reader might not understand that's what's going on
5: yeah it does at, at least for a while you know like there's just it's not risky in that like it doesn't take long for it all to come together hopefully you know but there is a period of i guess i'm just hoping that you're drawn into the story enough that you can be taken aback by certain things and just trust that I know what I'm doing, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, I I, try, I hope I know what I'm doing too. I mean, I, I feel like I do and that's all I can – that's all you can do, you know. Like I just, I just feel like that's true of writing any of these kinds of stories is that if it makes sense to you in more than just a superficial way, like if you just feel like, oh, this is the way to tell the story, you just kind of have to go for it. And I, I think you and I have had this conversation a lot. I definitely feel like I talk to writers about this a lot where sometimes you'll turn in a draft to a magazine editor – And it basically comes back where it's like, ah, I didn't really get this like here, like try it this way. And it's a much more, I guess, conventional structure or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And I used to just be like, okay, well I guess what I was trying to do doesn't work, right? And now I feel like I have a little more confidence where I start to think, well maybe they didn't, maybe it didn't work enough that they even knew that I knew what I was doing, right? (laughs) Like maybe my vision is worthwhile, or at least worthwhile enough to try again, and I just, I just didn't clear a bar where like they could see it through the mess, right? Uh-huh. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna like talk to them and explain what I want to do and, and try it again, and that was sort of a turning point for me, I think, where just to have that level of trust and just even like the, um, I don't know, the audacity to like take more of the editor's time <laughs> to put them through a second attempt or something, but, but I do feel like I look at the facts and the information, and I just see a way to do it. And it's not the only way to do it, and maybe it's not even the best way to do it, but that's the way that feels natural to me. So I've got to try to do it that way and do the best version of that I can before I'm going to try to do something that's not going to come naturally to me, because it's not, it's probably, it's not going to be as good if it's not like the one that's right in my, my mind, you know?
4: Mm-hmm. And did the people, when you started reporting and you were just interested in, okay, what happened here? And then you find Jeannie and you're looking at how people are responding. Did ultimately the way that, People did respond to what extent I guess did it match what you thought going in in terms of how people would would react to this like totally random sudden life changing
5: event well I don't I didn't actually have a lot of that in mind when I started I just had in mind like something totally crazy happened right and i mean i did I did know enough about what Jeannie had done on the radio and sort of the role she played in. Um, And a lot of other radio broadcasters, too, just the role that the radio itself played in helping people cohere. And that seemed to speak to some kind of connectedness or resiliency that's going to come up in a vacuum. But I really didn't know too much about the sociology of it. I mean, I knew some from reading Rebecca Solnit's amazing book about all that called A Paradise Built in Hell. I didn't actually realize, though, that when I sold the book, I didn't really think the sociologists were going to be as big a part of it because the sociologists touched down in Anchorage and they basically, you know, they're funded by the military and nominally the military is wanting them to document chaos so that they can prepare. This is like a proxy for nuclear war. That's that's the military's interest in all this. And the sociologists are are documenting the opposite. They're documenting how well people work together, right? And so basically I realized I had a story where you see in very specific, intimate ways individual people working together.
4: Yeah, I, I, I want to go back to this idea of what the lesson of how these people responded sort of means for this time in which we are currently talking because I, ke- I kept coming when I was reading through stuff, I kept coming back to 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 the kayaking story that you did, and there was there's a quote in there, from Hayden Carruth, who maybe you can describe who Hayden Carruth is. He, we might have even talked about him on a previous episode, I can't remember.
5: Yeah, so Hayden was a, a poet, an American poet, who I got to know a little bit when he was 80-something and I was 22. Um, I worked at a literary magazine at the time, and so part of my job was basically writing letters to Hayden to get his feedback on poems. So he's a very particular, um, amusingly, curmudgeonly guy at that time. And uh, actually, this is a sideline to what I was going to ask you, but
4: there you describe in that story uh, that you are sort of enamored with his persona, his like life in the woods uh, lifestyle that he had. And it really reminded me of something we haven't talked about yet, which is uh, the walking podcast. Like in some way, I feel like the walking podcast embodies uh, what you describe as like the Hayden Carruth, like uh, persona
5: that you admired. That's really funny. I mean, I think Hayden would find that ridiculous. I think (laughs) think you would, you know, think it's, uh, you know, just absurd that anyone would commodify walking. The walking podcast being a podcast in which
4: you start a tape recorder and then go on a walk through the woods and record that walk mostly without speaking.
5: Yeah. I read an ad in the middle and that's,
4: that's it. Yeah. I mean, it was named one of the best podcasts of 2019. Uh, yes. By yes. M- I think more than one
5: outlet even. Uh, I think so. Definitely one, maybe two. I think the AV club also. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't, I guess it's just the experience of making it is a uh, pretty not labor intensive and doesn't <laughs> take up a lot of my headspace, which is amazing because uh, I definitely am someone who puts a little too much into things sometimes and overthinks things and this is I've managed to just cordon off in an area of my life where it's just like as simple as it can be just like hit and record and going for a walk and hit and stop an hour later so yeah (laughs) I don't know it's sort of weird now because maybe people who are staying home want to hear the sound of someone going for a walk in the woods so I'd be you know really thrilled if there was some practical value to it right now I
4: want to go back to Hayden Carruth so Yes, There's please. this quote in the story about the kayaking accident from Hayden Kruth, which is, the wilderness begins at the edge of my body, at the edge of my consciousness, and extends to the edge of the universe, and it is filled with menace. And what is it, you think, in the response to the Alaska earthquake? What is it in what happened to Jeannie Chance and those people that in any way counters... This sort of idea of we are surrounded by menace,
5: yeah, that's a great way to ask it because we're also surrounded by each other, you know, and um I think that's the takeaway so i I have this excerpt from the book in The Times where I'm you know it started three weeks ago or four weeks ago when we were gonna do this excerpt. It was just supposed to be uh some stuff from the book, and now there you know there's a little section that sort of talks about coronavirus. Specifically, and I think it's like the same truth supply is that what you realize and, you know, what I realized reading the accounts of the quake and then what the sociologists realized collecting those accounts and then continued to realize as they went to more communities after more disasters, you know, in the 50 some odd years since, is that there is this impulse that we have. this like very clearly documented impulse that people everywhere have to help. Like it sounds tacky, but... That when the bottom drops out, when ordinary life is kind of overturned and there's this upheaval or this disruption, if it's a natural disaster or even something like this, that there's, you know, in the book I call it like a civic immune response, that people do spontaneously help each other, they work together, they collaborate. This whole idea that the society falls apart and everyone descends into madness and violence is just not true and like we know that that's like a we have science that shows it and i think what's so confusing about the coronavirus thing is that i think we're all feeling that same impulse and it's not for a lot of us there's no immediate danger right it's not i talk about a woman who during the earthquake she was on a stairwell And the shaking started and she saw this child in front of her who was just like, you know, bouncing all over the place. And she just grabbed the child, like without thinking, just grabbed the child and held on to him. Hmm. And uh, she said, uh, you know, all she was thinking during those four and a half minutes was, I'm thankful I'm here. I'm thankful that I'm here so I can hold on to this little guy, you know. And we don't, I don't think right now we have a, there's no problem right in front of us to solve, you know, for a lot of us, you know, there's clearly a lot that we can be doing to help, especially the people who are the most vulnerable. But I think generally, like, it's very confusing to know what to do. And, you know, these things like wash your hands and keep yourself healthy, they don't feel, they don't scratch that itch in some ways. It feels like, well, yo, yeah, but then what, you know? Yeah. And uh, And I think it's like, we really need to reimagine this Problem Like there's nothing – it's never clearer that we're like interconnected than when you have a pathogen <laughs> flying around, right? And so that it's like we need to be wor- – like we need to see washing your hands as the same kind of collaborative act as, you know, that woman grabbing that, that child. Uh, That's what I say in in the piece, you know, that we need to have this spirit of like, oh, you know, the the NBA season is postponed. Well, that's not because society's falling apart. Like that's actually because like society's kicking in to like do things to address this problem. You know, that's like a productive act. That's not a defeat. And, uh, you know, just even on the way my friend. So speaking of chaos is like went to go drive over here today and like, I guess a mouse had chewed through some wires in my engine. So my friend had to drive me over here <laughs> Um and we were just kind of talking about what's going on. And he was saying, you know, about the NBA, like, uh, that just like really hit me hard. Like it just felt like collapse, you know? And I said, that's crazy. You know, like the, it's like, if there were a fire, And you just showed up and you're like, what the hell's going on? Like, why are all these guys spraying water all over the place? You know, like, yeah, like in ordinary life, that would be madness. to just like start shooting water out (laughs) of hoses everywhere. But like, you know, that's what we're doing right now. Like, that's the job, you know? So, so I don't know. I think it applies in that way. It's like, it's so hazy and muddled right now because it's the coming together is like literally what we're not supposed to be doing, (laughs) but that spirit's there, you know? Well, John...
4: I'm very glad that the book is coming out in this time. And I'm also, I'm very appreciative of you as my friend.
5: Oh, thank you, Evan. I mean, you too. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me.
2: That's it for this week's Longform Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to John Mualem. His book is called This Is Chance. Obviously, I recommend that you go pick it up. Um, not only that, but uh, support any author who has a book out right now. It's a tough time for authors whose books happen to be showing up in this particular time. You can order online from a lot of your local indie booksellers. Some of them are offering touchless delivery. Some of them are offering pickup. You can order elsewhere online, but it's a great time to buy some books and support some authors. Special thanks to Chris Walker at Bainbridge Barn for making this recording possible. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our intern, Marina Clementi, and our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. And thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pitwriters. And thanks to you our listeners we always appreciate everyone who listens to this show but particularly in this moment i hope everyone out there is staying safe and sheltered to whatever extent you can we will see you next week
0: why do you run why does anyone i always thought that runners loved running